Hello and welcome to Layer, layer by, by Layer. layer. <laughs> uh, today is Sunday, August 26th, 2018. For now, at least. For now. Uh, <laughs> when you hear this, it will not be that date because I'm slow at editing, but that's when we're recording this. That was a suggestion from a Redditor um, yep. that we should yeah. say the say the date at the start of the show. Yeah, and it's definitely a good suggestion because we do talk about timely things and by in between us recording and releasing, things may have changed about these topics. So Yes, uh, and also, speaking of Redditors, our, we have a subreddit if you want to discuss us on our layer by layer. That's right. Reddit.com slash r slash layer by layer. Yeah, we'd really like to see more feedback too on uh, these podcast episodes. Um, it's... Uh, nice for us to kind of hear some uh, ideas from the listeners. So uh, if you've been kind of a lurker, you know, listening and not saying too much, we'd really like to hear from you to see what you'd like us to talk about or just whatever feedback you have about what we're discussing. Yes, and we actually, uh, I know I've added a few topics to our show notes from Redditor suggestions. I don't know if we've really gotten to many of them yet. but Granted, our show notes are long. So Yes, yes we have a lot of stuff that we did not get to. Uh, I want to give a shout out to... Uh, the user cubing in the dark who uh, they keep giving us like a full list of comments on each episode which I really I really like that format they just kind of take notes as they go through the show and I I really appreciate that no absolutely yeah it's nice to get pretty detailed feedback from our listeners and I see cubing in the dark just about every episode posting something so yeah so if you're if you're there we do read everything so or just about everything I might have missed a couple things every once in a while but yeah, when I start typing Reddit into my Chrome, it's now one of uh, the my subreddits that appears in my autocomplete. So yeah, <laughs> uh, I, ch- I check it on the daily. So. For for a while, I it was like my top thing, and it would just go directly there every time I just wanted to go to normal Reddit, and I had to like manually change that. <laughs> Portland and Cubers uh, come up still first for me because I check those pretty regularly too. Yeah, but. I haven't really done much, so what I've got is just like normal Reddit layer by layer, layer by layer again. Wait, this is weird. I'm going to take a screenshot of this because it just literally has the exact same thing twice. Oh, yeah. Some, is it a capitalization difference? No, they're literally identical. I'll put a screenshot in the show notes if I can okay. figure yeah, out how to do that. Cubers comes up for me twice, one lowercase cubers and one uppercase cubers. Oh, wait. I see the difference. One of them has a slash at the end of it. <laughs> That's silly. Oh, that is silly. And I guess that also works to navigate to our subreddit. So if you want, you can go to reddit.com slash r slash layer by layer slash. And, and that, that works. It, it just works. <laughs> nice. And you can have, if you do both ways, you can have it twice in your autocomplete, which is yep. twice the fun and twice There's the feedback. There's probably other ways. Like you, we could also like make a bit.ly link or something. And then you can use that too. I don't know. We got lots of options for getting to the subreddit. That's true. <laughs> I don't know. We're, I'm going to assume that our uh, our listeners are at least fairly familiar with Reddit enough to find it. All right. So first, you need to open your web browser. That's the little <laughs> thing with like the E icon, uh, or the or the like compass or the weird multicolor circle, and and you click on that. You do that by pressing the button on your mouse. A button you see is a thing that. Am I going too basic with this explanation? Is, is, this, is this a tech support <laughs> scam or what? Like, are you going to open up, like, GoToViewer or something on my computer? Uh, and... Yes. Could you please download uh, Log Me in Hamachi and then, like, give me full permission to control your computer so yeah. that I can see what you're doing? Um. 
Man, this is the worst podcast ever. <laughs> also, we'd like to thank Sarah for making the awesome logo for our podcast. Yep, Sarah Cook. You can find her work at Pastel Cubing on Instagram. And yeah, now let's get into what, what we usually do with the show, shall we? Hi, Andrew. Hi, Kit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we done? Yeah, that, I guess that was the check. No, what's up with you? What, what's going on in your life? Uh, you know, just uh, living out the last month of summer vacation before uh, school starts up again. Ah, uh, l- lucky you. Yeah. Uh, I, this is the last day I have before my first classes. Awesome. Um, yeah, I have a class in a little over eight hours as we are recording. Perfect. <laughs> so, so you're saying this is going to be another two-hour episode? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Well, I had a little more fun, I guess, uh, this weekend. Uh, Lauren and I went out uh, to the Oregon coast yesterday, mm. so that was fun. Uh, went to Cannon Beach, which has like this really cool lava rock formation, kind of just barely sitting offshore, called Haystack Rock. These are actually all over the Oregon coast. It's kind of weird. It's called Haystack Rock? Yeah, I think Did it is. Did you shoot it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I did not shoot the Haystack Rock. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is called Haystack Rock. And it's kind of weird because, like, when we were driving down the coast, we saw plenty more, like, giant rocks just off the shore that looked to be, like, lava formations. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, but there's puffins. just one that has a special name? Yeah, it has a special name, I guess. <laughs> uh, puffins like it there, apparently. Mm. Um, I like puffins. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. Uh, got to eat dinner on the shore some restaurant like on the coast and it rained so that was good uh because <laughs> that's typical it, the oregon coast is just so weird like when you compare it to like any east coast beach or any california beach just because like literally the mountains just run right up to the coast and i know that happens i know that happens in places in california too but mm-hmm. it's it's different just because everything is pine trees up to the coast like, it's, it looks like there should not be a beach under any circumstances nearby, and then all of a sudden it's a beach. Yeah, it's just like a pine forest and then sand. Yeah, it's bizarre. Hmm. Like, just some of the views you get if when you're, like, in the middle of state parks, like, just giant cliffs with, uh, you know, pine trees atop them, then, you know, drop half a mile down the cliff, and there's a beach at the bottom. I, I know there's an, a place in San Diego called Torrey Pines, which is, like, mm, right on the beach. That. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many actual pine trees they have, but I assume there are some. It's been a long time since I've been there. Isn't that like a golf course too? Yeah, there is. That's what it's kind of known for. Yeah, that's. I feel like I've heard that because I've heard of the golf course name before, mm-hmm. but I have no. I do not play golf whatsoever, but I've heard of that golf course. Yeah, my my brother and dad do a bit. Looking at images, I don't see many pine trees. Hmm. Hmm. Suspicious. I mean, it makes sense because San Diego is not exactly pine tree. No, (laughs) not quite. (laughs) But yeah, that was fun. We also went to the uh, Tillamook factory place, um, (laughs) which is in Tillamook, Oregon. You have Tillamook stuff in California, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Is and it's not. Is it not like the best dairy in the world? I. I'm not. I, I wouldn't say I have a particularly discerning palate for dairy. Um, <laughs> but you, have you ever had their ice cream? I haven't had their ice cream, except no. Well, I had it when I was at your house. Oh, uh, true. Yes, and that was good. That was really mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I mean, so, Tillamook ice cream is ridiculously good. Like, I know I've had their cheese, but I'll be honest, it was like I've just had like cheddar cheese from them. I think, and all cheddars. 
relatively similar or at least all like you know standard like orange cheddar right yeah i mean I, yeah it, i can't really taste too much of a difference between cheddar to cheddar but i mean um there's a few like if you if you have a like if you melt a block of tillamook cheese for like nachos like it's better than usual cheese hmm. like i don't know it's it depends on the form it comes in like because often you know when you have cheese in a sandwich like that's not the thing you're mostly tasting yeah unless unless your sandwich is grilled cheese right <laughs> um and to be fair tillamook or some cheese, kind of like panini or something yeah Sometimes. and to be fair tillamook cheese is pretty damn good for grilled cheese so um but like their sour cream is ridiculously good their yogurt is really good like i don't know people not on the west coast are missing out on their stuff is it is it not available outside of the west coast i guess i've just always kind of assumed it is but because i didn't really i didn't realize it was an oregon thing yeah it's it's tillamook's a city in oregon like the, mm. it okay. the yeah so um more variety is on the west coast so because i i only really learned about it when i moved here and then when i came back i started to notice like oh hey our supermarket sells only medium cheddar of tillamook huh so um like i'm sure that if you are on the east side of the country like there's select things but like this like back in michigan there's no sour cream there's no ice cream like one really specialty market said they could special order it for us but um (laughs) it it really doesn't make it far beyond the west side of the country and it's a shame to anyone that doesn't uh get to partake in their dairy products i'm gonna have to go get some ice cream (laughs) <laughs> that's right let's just make sure we're done recording by ones that i can make it to the grocery store before it closes yeah. <laughs> is that a safe way uh it's a vons but basically oh. the same thing okay same same company yeah. oh, oh it is yeah oh. they sell safeway stuff weird okay mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i know the like are the only grocery stores that are open late around here are, Q, are uh, qfc's which are often 24 hours and safeway um which go till usually 1 a.m., which is why I asked. Yeah, I, I know that I know that most of the Vons around here go till either 12 or 1, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the same with Safeway here. So that's funny. Just give it a different name, kind of like how it's Kroger most places in the yeah. country. But in the Northwest, it's Fred Meyer. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> cool. So what's been going on with you? Uh, well, I've it's been my last week before school started so I've been trying to get some work done on some other like side project kind of things mm-hmm. I started a new podcast uh, <laughs> actually having... it was kind of incidental um it, these things just happen to me sometimes uh you know I'm just walking walking along and then just boom I've produced a podcast uh <laughs> you aren't sick of editing too already well, this one's really quick. It, is, it was just like, it's like less than 20 minutes. Uh, okay. It's, well, and it, before I can explain what the podcast is, I have to tell you about how I've been designing a board game. Uh, oh. Yeah. Just That's cool. Mostly just to see if I could and make an actual good game, and it's going really well. Uh, I managed to rope Walker into playing it over uh, Tabletop Simulator, because I like programmed it into Tabletop Simulator. Oh, nice. Uh, the prototype I have so far. And, uh, yeah, he had pretty good uh, positive feedback in general. He said it was a lot, like, once he realized, because at first he thought I just wanted to, like, play a game with him on Tabletop Simulator. Mm-hmm. And then once he realized that we were playing, like, a game I made up, he had low expectations. And he said he was uh, surprised at how much of, like, an actual game it was. <laughs> uh, so I'm taking that as a compliment. Yeah, when you, <laughs> you need, when you have, like, your... If you ever get like a box for the game and you put like what people say about this game, that's got to be a quote that goes on there. Yeah, it, it plays like an actual game. game. Yeah, 
But yeah, if you want to hear more about that game, you can check out my other podcast, uh, Brain to Board, it's called. It, it was the sort of thing where I was like, I want to like document the process of making this was more of the rationale behind it. That's kind of And cool. I was like, a podcast seems like an okay way for me to do that. And also it could be sort of a resource for other people who are trying to design a board game. I'm also planning to kind of go through like the um, the process of somehow making it, getting it printed and made Maybe, uh, I don't know if I'm going to like try to sell my idea to a publishing, board game publishing company or like try to kickstart it or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been looking into that. That's seemed like the kickstarting thing seems like a very complicated process to actually get it manufactured. Yeah. So it might be a lot easier to try to sell it to a publisher. But then I, that's also has its own complications of like trying to pitch it and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to go through that whole process. And somehow the goal is to get it made. Uh, I don't know how that's going to happen exactly, but the podcast is sort of a log of the process of designing the game and trying to get it made. Cool. So is this is this going to be solely for this game? Like, do you envision this being sort of a terminal podcast? Like, once kind of the game reaches its hmm. fateful end? Or do you envision, like, once that's done, like, oh, maybe I'll create a second game in progress and see how... I- yeah, I guess goes. I, I haven't really planned that far. I guess it kind of just <laughs> depends on how this game goes and mm-hmm. also how the podcast goes. Like, maybe I'll not want to make another game, but maybe the podcast will have some listenership and I'll be like, I can just keep doing a podcast about board games or something. Yeah, I mean, what, you've maybe recorded one or two episodes so far? Or? Yeah, I have two episodes out. I'm releasing them weekly because they are so, like, they're actually really quick to make. And mm-hmm. that's also sort of forcing me to actually make progress on the board game every week. Do you have someone you, uh, that co-hosts with you, or is it just you no, talking No, it's through it? just me talking. I have sort of like a bullet-pointed list of things I want to talk about. Like, I actually write out a little script for the intro to each episode, mm-hmm. uh, and then just a bullet-pointed list of things I want to talk about and just kind of freestyle about it, keeping it relatively quick. So you're saying it's kind of like me, me recording this podcast with you, but you can't listen to me. <laughs> yes. That's really like the, it's kind of like the thing we were talking about in like the very first episode where we both record the podcast just monologuing at the same time and put like put one in each ear. <laughs> well, maybe maybe I should do the uh, the Kit responds to Andrew's board game podcast podcast, and then then we can have like the collaborative show where we add them together on each on on a stereo track with one in each ear <laughs> it's coming together i this idea was it was start from episode one we had it in, the, in our minds it's, it's slowly <laughs> now, coming together now it's gonna come into the world <laughs> now i need to start a podcast about the process of creating this new podcast <laughs> <laughs> we, how, how many meta layers can we go on this <laughs> uh so yeah i've been doing that and that that was also sort of started with um playing a ton of pandemic and i was like i want to create another collaborative board game that feels similar to pandemic because i don't really know of any ah a millennial board game <laughs> yes yes <laughs> <laughs> that's what uh whenever because we I, I really like collaborative board games and mm-hmm. um whenever uh <laughs> laura and i go back to her parents place and we uh talk about some new game that we bring home to play with them their uh lauren's dad goes ah it's one of those millennial board games <laughs> Oh, that's great. I've, I've kind of started to call collaborative board games, millennial board games, uh, somewhat sarcastically. I mean, you know, those millennials, they can't handle the pressure of actual competition, so... That's right. We gotta give everybody a participation trophy. <laughs> or, we... everybody a participation, you lose. 
That's right. <laughs> a you tried trophy. Yes, I think that happens much more often with <laughs> Pandemic, at least, on yeah. when you're playing with a bunch of expansions. I actually played base Pandemic uh, last week for the first time in years. I've, I own I own the base Pandemic, and it's a fun game, but man, those, uh, those Epidemic cards, if they get stacked together, you are so screwed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I would understand that if you're just like an amateur pandemic player like whoa, yourself. Uh, whoa. <laughs> well, calm down. You're starting to sound almost as snobby as uh, you sound when you talk about PRs. <laughs> yeah, well, I just broke my pandemic PR recently. I was at a <laughs> competition. No. <laughs> uh, oh, you went to a pandemic competition? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. If you go um, to pandemic competitions, do you actually contract real illnesses? Yeah, it's it's I was it's actually I just got a new job at the CDC. <laughs> is that what this new podcast is about? Your new job at the CDC now? No, that's my other podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's called I'm Not Qualified. <laughs> Isn't the, that a the real whole podcast? It should be. <laughs> like the whole premise is just like you try to get jobs that you're not qualified for and keep them as long as you can. <laughs> that actually sounds like a pretty interesting podcast. <laughs> But terrible, like it sounds like a life ruining podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Let's just let's just keep making up fake names and applying for jobs and <laughs> fake credentials. See how it goes. <laughs> God. But but then maybe eventually it'll reach some tipping point where where like companies start seeking you out because of the novelty of hiring you, and they'll get like <laughs> they'll get like PR as in public relations, not personal records, um, out of you doing the podcast about their company. You know, I almost thought they were going to get PBs out of this, but thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> yeah, well, public belations. That's just when the public is really late to something, when it's really belated. Man, the public is always so belated, just like they are listening to this podcast. Yeah, they're it's... totally not listening to this on August 26th. <laughs> uh, I guess I should clarify, we're recording this on August 26th, but it'll probably be August 27th by the time we're done. That is true. Only 23 <laughs> more minutes. Uh, well, what were we talking about? We like sidetracked about five times in the middle of that conversation. Uh, I don't know. Do we, do we want to go into like the normal show? <laughs> yeah, probably. I think I know what's going on with your life now. So I guess first we could talk about, uh, this prank we pulled on Walker. Yeah. Tell me about it. So this prank, this scramble was ridiculous. Um, so it was me, Mark Boynowski, Jay McNeil, and Ryan DeLine. We did this like one night we just did this scramble normally together on a discord server and we're talking about it and we found crazy stuff on this scramble one of which was a 23 last layer skip that i found okay um wait did you this was like so you actually did the attempt we actually did the attempt first and then in you and you guys found like crazy stuff on the actual attempt yeah okay no yeah this was a good scramble i think my result in the end was a 19 wow yeah, it's it was my PB scramble. I'm pretty sure where I th- I can't remember the it was some three corner skeleton. It says here sixteen to three seed. Yeah, but that found it. That was a different um, solution. I think. Oh, okay. That that was a, for a twenty one. Unless I'm somehow misremembering, there was definitely a scramble around that time that I got a uh, nineteen on. Oh, that was different. Twenty one was my actual result on this. Okay. Um, but I also found in that hour a 23 last layer skip so just <laughs> stupid stupid stuff the whole way through and, th- and this was on the uh the datums 
weekly thing, right? I think it was. Yeah. I, th- I think that's what Walker told me when he told me yeah. about this a long time yeah, yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah. Not, nobody does datums anymore because it doesn't do the R prime, U prime F yeah. stuff. But... Well, also it's just one solve and there's a lot of places that do means now. True. Yeah. So Mark, if I believe his actual result was a 25, but after the fact, and I can't remember what Jay got or Ryan got, but um, after the fact, we plug this into insertion finder, or not insertion finder, um, cube explorer, and we see that it was optimal 17 because we were just curious like mm. this scramble was pretty good like you know mm-hmm. how good was the best solution and it was, it was 17 and we were looking at the 17 move solution and it legitimately had like two by two by two two by two by three <laughs> finish like sub steps okay it was stupid like we were all like how did none of us find this okay <laughs> <Huh. laughs> It was a little a little strange block building, but it wasn't completely out of the question. Mm-hmm. Like, totally findable. And because Walker didn't do it with us, like, we were waiting several nights for him to come online so we could all do it together. And we are like, eh, four out of five is good enough. <laughs> because I think the previous week he decided to do the datum scramble without Mark, I believe. We decided, hey, let's get back at him and do a prank on him. So... <laughs> We use all the solutions that we found that were good, and we planned out like this course of attack where we would say what we found certain minutes into uh, this, the attempt to make it sound believable <laughs> to Walker. So, so it's like you're building him up, and it's like, and he's also looking at the scramble, which is good, so he can totally believe you guys finding these good things, right? Is that yes. the idea? It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it kept building up. That, that by the time we found the really good seventeen solution, mm-hmm. that it would be believable. Right. <laughs> and then it wasn't like, you know, we just all found it out of nowhere. Like, it had to sound like we were building up to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I found both of my solutions in there, the ones I actually found. Then at halfway through, Jay just tells us he found something good, but wasn't going to tell us exactly what it was. Kind of like a, you know, this is so good, I don't want to tell you until the very end sort of thing. Yeah. Like, don't want to give you any hints. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Now, beforehand, too, we looked at the 17 solution, and Mark found a way to uh, find 18 to 3 edges if you finish it differently, uh-huh. or you do something different in the middle. I can't remember exactly, but we're like, okay, Mark, that's how you're finding this. Uh, <laughs> so, um, or no, no, just kidding. The 18 to 3 edges definitely did not find the, the 17 for sure, but um, it was related to the 17. Are you sure it wasn't that the 18 to 3 E three edges was like, like the insertions canceled more moves than the, ins- than you inserted. So it ended up turning into the 17. I think Mark was there when he was, when Walker was telling me about this and Mark said that, uh, like he found some stupid way to insert something that added a, like to insert, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. to yeah. insert a cycle that added one move. So then if you, if you, if he acted like that was his skeleton yeah, and then he inserted right. it. Part of the plan though, is that he wouldn't find that optimal insertion. <laughs> Okay. So, um, cause it, I think it was a pretty weird com. Um, okay. but, uh, anyway, so then basically, uh, then, um, Ryan would find the 17 about 10 minutes after Jay found something good. Mm-hmm. And then we had, uh, them hop over to a separate, uh, voice <laughs> channel in discord so they could talk about it and see if it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then they come back like, yeah, it was the same thing. Then later I find it. Wait, wait, wait. I, I like how in your notes it says 38 minutes. Mark finds 18 to 3E. Ryan laughs maniacally and says he has something good. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that was meant to make fun of Jay saying he has something good. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds like Ryan. That's very on brand right there. <laughs> oh yeah, very much. Ryan to line trademark. Um, <laughs> the beard trademark. So um, Mark though doesn't. He finds the eighteen to three edges, and then we find we do we go together after and like Mark, you're a dumbass. This was the seventeen, <laughs> and then right before the very end, Mark finds it. Okay. Yeah. So he does find it in the end. Okay. So yeah, that was the whole prank. We basically did this whole setup leading up to everybody finding this 17 move solution. Um, <laughs> we were just, we were talking about beforehand and like, we're wondering because of how easy the 17 was, like, what are the odds that Walker actually finds this? Yeah. <laughs> and makes us look like, the, you know, look dumb because of this, because we didn't actually find the 17, but you're he just did. pretending to. And then he yeah. actually is like, oh, hey, I found it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would have been so great. I, that would have been... Yeah. The ideal outcome because that's just <laughs> hilarious that would have been the karma outcome for sure yeah. <laughs> um man we felt real bad though because like walker was like super sad when we did this oh. day. <laughs> he was like oh my god everybody has a better pb than me <laughs> and this was so easy like he looked at our solution and was like wow yeah that how did i not see this clearly because four other people saw this <laughs> and then we all had a laugh when we told him walker none of us found this <laughs> uh it was good it was real good um we were laughing walker was not laughing <laughs> oh man but yeah that's that's my prank now the next level to go to for this is for walker to get back at you all by organizing <laughs> a competition but it's not an actual wca competition but he makes everyone think it is like i don't know like he gets like whoever lists webs like lists the websites at the WCA or he uses his delegate powers to swing something so that it's like a fake competition. He does all the scrambles beforehand and finds optimal on them. <laughs> so everyone thinks he just like broke the world record to like eighteen or something, like an eighteen mean, but then it turns out it was all unofficial. <laughs> um, I don't think that would ever fly, but it would be funny. What are you talking about? Why can't the new like leader of the ethics committee organize a fake competition as a prank? You know, you're right. It's totally within his powers. Yeah. I'm mistaken. He can just be like, yeah, I, I'm the leader of the ethics committee and I judge my actions to be ethical. <laughs> Man, this doesn't sound like anything currently that's happening. <laughs> nope, not at all. Uh, well... Yes, of course. We don't try to draw any parallels to anything in the real world. No, this, this, is is all... a, this is a cubing podcast. Yes, yes of on. course. <laughs> Anyways. Um... Anyway, speaking of basket cases. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to talk about this, uh, the multi-blind basket thing that we, we touched on last episode? Right, yeah. So I saw that video. Um, yeah, it was, so... Uh... Berta Garcia Parra. In case anyone didn't listen to the last episode recently and has forgotten, we talked about uh, putting cubes in a basket for multi-blind and whether or not that qualifies as like outside assistance or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is a video of someone who has done this in an official competition. And as of right now, their results stand. You, you said you were looking more into that. Yeah. Do you want to so give some details? I... I was curious to see if it, you know, had been discussed in the delegate report yet for, because it was at Euros, right? Yes. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. uh, Berta Garcia. You know, I was curious because, you know, there's usually a lot of incidents that happen at these big competitions. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, you know, with a very lengthy incident list, you know, some of them are going to get missed and people are going to discuss certain ones and not others. Uh, turns mm-hmm. out this one was actually an incident here listed for a different reason. Uh, apparently Berta asked the judge uh, when she put them in the basket uh, to move the cubes so they'd be like packed in tightly in the basket. And then, and after two cubes in, some uh, judge came in and was like, "No, no, no! You cannot. De- you could definitely not do that." Yeah. And then it just continued as a normal basket for the rest of the attempt, and it apparently stands. Okay, I didn't. I didn't realize that part of it. That's interesting too. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I didn't realize it either. I'm pretty sure it's fast forwarded in the video pretty quickly, mm-hmm. so you probably can't catch it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's a completely different issue. That one I think is very clearly no. That's not allowed. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> but the basket itself, you could conceive of, you know, compared to someone who doesn't have a basket under the same, you know, same uh, conditions to provide some sort of advantage because they don't have to take as much care in placing their puzzles and like worrying about them hitting the ground or something. But to be fair, I've been at a lot of competitions that have, you know, the classroom style tables that are like mm-hmm. half the width of the normal six or eight foot tables. Mm hmm. Uh, and if somebody's doing a large attempt, they're like, I could not place all my cubes on a table this small. Yeah. And in some ins- you know, grabbing a second table and like adjoining it so they have a larger space to work with, you know, effectively is doing the same thing as giving someone a basket. Yeah. So. And, and that would pretty much be allowed, right? Right. I, I, I mean, can't, I can't see anyone sit, like having any argument against that. For sure. So as long as, you know, people aren't packed, there's not someone packing the cubes for you in the basket, uh, you know, (laughs) um, I can't see that being any different than placing a table next to you at this because, you know, tables are different at every competition. Yeah. So, you know, it's already to some extent unequal conditions, which means that having a basket is, you know, maybe no much more of an advantage than it is from competition to competition currently. So are you are you going to like bring that up to the delegate of, of the com- or the delegates of the competition? Yeah, I was going to just ask more like, discussion. Yeah, I was just going to ask what their thoughts were on it and cuz you know, if by letting that stand that kind of sets a precedent, you know, for anyone yeah. to just bring a basket to a competition. Mm-hmm. I don't really see a huge issue with it. You know, it's just no different than giving yourself a larger space to work with, you know, mm-hmm. like who cares if they're in a basket or just, you know, spread out on an infinitely long table. I don't see it as a huge issue, but I think it's definitely something we should think about. Yeah. And I mean, make sure that there's no, you know, potential issues that could come with having a basket. I mean, you could also think that a basket if you are like for cubes that you're sure are done and then like your set aside cubes, mm. you don't have to like hunt for them. They're just not in the basket or maybe mm-hmm. next to the basket. Um, you know, so maybe that's a bit different, but at the same time, you know, with an infinitely long table, you could also just chuck good cubes as you know pretty far <laughs> down this infinitely long table. Um, Four, and, yeah. <laughs> and you know, have your unsure or you know incomplete cubes close to you too, which mm-hmm. I don't see as much different than either. So you know, this isn't something I've given a lot of thought. This is actually mostly thoughts that are just kind of coming to me as I'm going right now. <laughs> um, but might, um, might be good to follow up on that later if there is any more discussion about it. I would anticipate that no one's going to have an issue with the basket, but yeah, I would definitely be interested to see where that discussion goes. Uh, so we've got another topic of follow up here about multi-blind. Uh, just a thought I had, you were talking about how the multi-blind world record is like, it's always N out of N and you felt like, <laughs> it shouldn't always be an out of N like that. Cause that's so hard to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was thinking about it and I realized that like 
it makes sense for the world records to be n out of n because there's only so many different results you can get that would break a world record based on the number of cubes you're attempting. Mm -hmm. That's true. So maybe in the most recent case, it's a little bit more of an outlier in this respect. But like historically speaking, I would expect that a lot of world records are n out of n because like let's take Mark's, um, which actually wasn't n out of n. It was 43 out of 44, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. Um, so his world record, the world record was 41 points. So to beat that, he needed to get a 42 or a faster 41. And if he's attempting 44 cubes, there are only two results he can get that would beat the world record. That would be 43 out of 44 or 44 out of 44. That's true. So basically, with that number of cubes he's attempting, there's basically a 50% chance of the result that actually beats the world record being n out of n. So I feel like that that might that's probably the reason why a lot of multi-blind world records tend to be n out of n. Yeah, there's still some pretty big jumps, though. I'm, I just pulled up the world record history for multi-blind. It jumped uh, in 2009 from 10 to 15. Then it was pretty incremental in n out of n's up to 19. We had a couple 23 out of 25s, um, and that's when Mascow took over. And Mascow went from then, let's see, he had 29 points in a 35 out of 41 world record. Okay. Then beat that by three points to get 32 out of 32, three points to get 35 out of 35, six points to get 41 out of 41. There's been definitely N out of N jumps, but um, I think you make a good point. Like listening to that list, most of the N out of N like world records were consecutive, whereas mm -hmm. just incre incrementing by one point, which means they were only attempting one more. So the only way to get the world record is to go N out of N. Yeah, that, and that's definitely true. Yeah, and then a few of Moscow's jumps were also it was like within the range where it's not that unlikely to be n out of n and i mean naturally the best results you know the the best records in the world are going to be based off good performances right so it's natural that you'll see more n out of n's there i just think that um the, the point i was trying to make is that i think because of the way the records are people think that n out of n's are just more common than they really are mm -hmm. especially too that somehow like a not an out of n record even if it's only one cube off like mark's like i think i made the point last episode that you know it was impressive that mark was had solved every cube so far and was holding the last cube in his hand when time was struck mm -hmm. like that's impressive accuracy and yeah <laughs> to be fair he probably wouldn't have gotten that that 44th cube anyways at least that's what he thought afterward that um at least not in a reasonable amount of time yeah he doesn't feel like he was close to recalling the cube Mm -hmm. but it's hard to know like you know if we just let him sit there for another five minutes maybe he would have thought of it it's hard to say now um yeah but he thought that he didn't really have much of a chance to recall it maybe we should give him a chance now like hand him the cube yeah the same way to, like recall this <laughs> yeah do you recall this memo i think he would just get pissed at us if we did that to him just it'd be yeah, like that, that... a rubbing the one wrong cube in his <laughs> face sort of thing it does seem like it would come off a little mean-spirited a little bit but it would be for science yeah <laughs> maybe like after he went through and like checked what his memo was it's now like imprinted in his memory forever as the one he messed up <laughs> uh well the thing too is like how is he gonna figure out what cube to recall when you know we just say recall this cube like if he looks at it he just memo it I mean, do That's... we just like blindfold him <laughs> hand him a cube in his orientation to be like recall it yeah, guess guess which which cube this is. Okay. <laughs> now this is sounding truly mean spirited. Yeah. Hey, Mark, what is like the cube? What's your least favorite cube you've ever not solved? 
Uh, yeah, you're a jerk. <laughs> so, should we talk about Kinch rankings? I would like that. I'm pretty into Kinch stuff. Cool. So, let's talk about what's good about Kinch. Yeah. Well, should we go over what Kinch is and summer ranks? Because yes, I'd imagine this is even more ranks. niche than than like when I explained blindfolded solving. Yes, very <laughs> true. So, um. One thing about queuing is that, um, you know, there's a lot of attention given to people who are very good at specific events, and at least to the the, the layman cuber, may not appreciate those who are very well-rounded, good at many different puzzles or to many different events, because they just don't see them getting records. So, some of Ranks was kind of the first thing that was done on the WCA website to kind of give recognition to the best ranked all-around cubers, uh, yep. which was simply done by just adding up all of their single ranks or all of their average rankings in the world or in a specific country too. Uh, but most people care about the world one. And this then gives some sort of measure in terms of how good they are well-rounded is the worse you are, the higher your rank is and therefore the higher your sum of ranks are. Yeah. So for instance, if you've competed in like every event and you and you rank 20 in every event, your sum of ranks would be like 20 times the number of events. It's you just add up whatever your world rank is for each event, and yep. if you haven't competed in something like Felix hasn't competed in feet, you just get whatever the worst world rank is plus one. Yep. So everyone who has not completed an event basically is just behind the worst person in the world. Yep. Uh, which makes some sense, but it's also kind of uh, silly for certain events, especially like blindfolded events, which are hard to get successes in mm-hmm. because. You know, in 3x3, three three, I would imagine, you know, someone with, like, an 8-minute average isn't that big of a gap above someone who's never solved a cube before. For those people in the database that have, like, only done magics or something, I don't know. Yeah, like, if, if you have not solved 3x3, three three, your sum of ranks is going to be, like, 100,000-something. Right. Um, and if you have solved a 3x3, three three, you know, you In could... any kind of, like, reasonable time. Yeah, you're going to jump a ton of ranks. Yeah, you're going to lop off like 50,000 ranks with like a two-minute solve or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you solve, say, a four-by-four four blindfolded for the first time, it's likely you're going to be pretty slow at it. And you're maybe taking off 10 ranks, 10 yeah. to 20. Um, Just because there compared. aren't that many people who have solved it in the world. So you're not going right. to be better than that many people. Like, it, And I don't know how many people that have solved a four-blind so far, but I think it's like I don't know. I, th- I think it's like six or seven hundred. I don't know if it's hit a thousand yet. I think it's over a thousand. Has it? I, yeah, I looked it up. I thought it was like twenty five hundred, but I wow. might be wrong. Wow, really? Man, when I got my first four blind success, it was like three hundred. There's all, very few in North America still. I think for some reason, um, I remember like when I get in mine, it was the worst in North America, and it was like rank sixty eight or something. <laughs> in, Interesting. Um, nope. There's only six hundred ninety three people with oh, really? s- successes in the world okay. right now. Okay, I, yeah. I must be remembering some other event. Yeah, but I mean, if you think about that, so if you have never solved anything blindfolded before, your sum of rank in this event is 694. Yes, and which obviously there is a, is, there is a yeah. giant skill gap between 693 and 694. Yeah. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> and yet, like, for the person who's 693rd in the world, they've solved a 4x4 blindfold, and all they get to show for it is one rank better. Yeah, and additionally, the rank between 693 and 1, compared to other events, like, for 3x3, three three, mm-hmm. uh, let me just, like, look up what the 3x3 three three average 693rd time is. 
So the 693rd rank in 3x3 is about 9.38. Pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, whereas in four blind, it's something like really long. It's like you just barely know how to do the event, like the equivalent of like a two minute or three minute three by three solve. Right. Kind I mean, there's still, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah. Yeah. With the with four blind, the gap between knowing and not knowing is huge. Yes. Yeah, um, that's true. But um, so but yeah, still, I, mean, I, of... I would argue that the gap between first in the world and last in the world is roughly the same. Uh, well, no, at, at least it's a lot bigger than the gap between 9.38 and 5.8. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, yeah, the gap for four blind. So so basically by improving at four blind, you're not going to improve your sum of ranks nearly as much as if you improve at like three by three or pyraminx yes. or something. So this was an issue in terms of, uh, you know, there being... To, you know preference for more popular events um yep. when a lot of events that take a great deal of skill are not as recognized simply because they're harder to do and therefore people don't do them as much mm -hmm. there have been some other ways around this um one thing i did see around the time the kinch ranks was coming out is um proportional sum of ranks so, so what is that instead of having just sum of ranks you give percentiles to every competitor oh Okay. So this then weights every event equally, which is nice uh, because it gives, you know, equal rights to every event. In a yeah. Way. So like um, if you're in the top 10% of 10, three by three solvers and you're the top 10% of four by four solvers, you get the same score. Exactly. Um, one of the issues with this, though, is that it made it very hard to differentiate, uh, especially in really popular events, you know, rank one from rank 10. Okay. Yeah. It, there was essentially no difference. You were mm -hmm. the the 100th percentile or the 99.999 percentile. Literally meaningless. Mm -hmm. And then, like, what, how, like, but even though there's a giant gap between 10th in the world and 1st in the world. So if you are 10th in the world in 3x3 three three, and you're 1st in the world um, in 3x3, three three, there's very little gap between you. But say you look at some meaningless event like Skube or something. <laughs> Sorry, skew people. Um, <laughs> but, you know, say, you know, one person solves it in 11 seconds and one person solves it in nine seconds on average. Okay. You know, and they have such huge skill gaps in three by three, but it's not showing up in the percentile. But now there's almost no skill gap between someone who solves like a skew in 11 versus nine seconds. Yeah, that's like yeah. a difference of just how lucky you get on the solves. Right, but percentile wise, huge. Yeah. So... Just because there are so many people who fall into that range. Exactly. So there's a bit of a kind of measurement. Like, so the, there's nothing wrong with the measurement itself. It's doing exactly what you're telling it to do. Uh, but when you're trying to kind of uh, correlate what the measurement is doing versus what really it means, like what are the meaningful differences here, those are not aligned. Right. Um, so Daniel Shepard, his ranking system tried to address that issue by taking... Uh, his system of Kinch ranks. So Kinch is like his screen name online too. If you're ever, if there are those of you wondering why it's called Kinch ranks, <laughs> he made it and named it after his uh, online persona. Um, the idea behind Kinch ranks then is uh, that you would take the world record in every event as a benchmark time. Whatever your time is, you take the world record and divide by your own time as sort of like a percentage-ish kind of to measure how close you are to that record so for instance if the world record an event is 10 and your your solve is 20 you have a kinch score for that event of 0. 0.5 
Exactly. But then you multiply by 100, so it would actually be 50. Yeah, because they, yeah, their, their kin scores are measured in percentages rather than proportions. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so this does a great job of addressing the issue that um, percentiles ranks, some of percentile rankings has, um, in that it still weights all events equally, but now there are big gaps at the top of the leaderboard. Currently, if you look at uh, 3x3 average, so currently the world record average is uh, 5.80. Mm-hmm. Second in the world is 5.95. What used to be, you know, minuscule difference, you know, 100% now for rank one, and then barely below 100% for rank two. Rank two is now 97%. So that's still a small difference, but it's way more than like so much point zero 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 one or something. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's actually a meaningful difference. Like gaining yeah, so... three kinch points in an event is a, a sizable jump. Yeah. You know. And the difference between like first and tenth, which would have been almost identical to first and second with the percentile ranking system is eighty seven percent. Yeah, so that's very big. Right. And the the percentile system would have literally no distinction between these two. It'd be yep. so insignificant. It would be negligible. Yeah, exactly. So um this is one big advantage uh that kinch has over the previous system so i kind of see this is how i kind of see the progression of ranking systems from kind of worst to best in my eyes you other people can have different interpretations of what they think is good or bad some people think that more popular events should get weighted more because more people care about them yeah maybe i disagree but i don't yeah i also disagree because often it's like the events that aren't popular are less popular because they're so much harder to do exactly and that's i'm just saying that my idea of worst to best is a value judgment and you can make your own value judgments but your value judgment is correct that's correct (laughs) (laughs) so um i so one there's those some issues that i had with kinch ranks it's a great system um and it's a big improvement over the sum of ranks and sum of percentiles um but some of the issues that it has um is that the distributions of each event are not always comparable the variation in times for an event can be wildly different and then what also what even makes a bigger impact on the distribution is how close world record times are to the to zero relative to how much people improve essentially or how much people vary from one person to another in their best time all right so break those down for me yeah so this Uh, is go go through what you just said (laughs) yeah so this is a real tricky concept um but one event that's really drastic i'll 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 compare two very drastic extremes two by two and fewest moves all right there is some theoretical lower bound to how fast or how good you can do an event nobody is going to get a 0.02 two by two average yeah uh most most likely (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't. Even if you get a, a scramble set of five four movers, I don't <laughs> think you can possibly get a two hundredths of a second average on those five scrambles. I don't know steroids, man. <laughs> steroids. Um, I don't know. Maybe if you had like a way to slow down time or something. I don't know. But well, speaking. Okay, no, never, never mind. That's way too much of a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make the point that there is probably for every event some skill floor. Right. Or ceiling yeah. for multi-blind, uh, but floor for every other event, <laughs> where <laughs> you just can't possibly get an average or a, a result lower than this time. Yes. 
I don't, I'm not going to argue where they are. I think that's a really tricky question. You know, is it 0.35? Is it 0.4? You know, I don't know. Um, it's not it 0.7. Depends. Yeah, I don't, it, I it depends on physical. <laughs> it depends. It depends on physical limitations. I'm t- and I'm talking about an average too, not just a single. Yeah, but I mean, if you can get a single under 0.7, you can get an average under 0.7 if you just okay. get perfectly lucky. You can. Yeah. So, and, 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 and there's a lot of ways you can define like what are you thinking in terms of this floor, like within probabilistic limits, you know, okay. or yeah, so. There's a lot of ways people can conceive these limits, but we can definitely, you know, make the argument that every event has some floor and those floors are different yes that's the main point i wanted to make here and some of them are relatively very close to zero some of them are miles away from zero yeah um and this is where things get tricky for example someone who has say a three average in two by two has a rank of a half and when you get sub three like if you're in the twos i wouldn't say you're world class but you're definitely a good two by two solver yes Um, you have to actually practice the event a good amount to get to that Speed. yeah or practice a decent amount go to a lot, a lot of competitions to get lucky but for most people there i would imagine they're they practice the event yeah <laughs> um and practice it somewhat seriously and at three seconds your kinshrank is under 50 percent. yes which is not particularly good now let's take fmc or fewest moves yeah um we actually know what the exact possible floor is well not well, exactly, because yeah. I guess eh, it depends on how the scrambles are generated. But probabilistically, like getting below, you know, 17 average is nearly impossible. Yes, because just there's so few scrambles that can even be solved in less than 17. Right. Like, yeah. So um, you can also. Th- yeah, because some people floors are different than ceilings. 20 moves is a ceiling. We're talking about floors yes. here. Yeah. So it's not 20 for sure, because you could get three 19s. It's not every scramble that has 20 as its best. It varies. So let's say somebody has, you know, a 30 second average. Or sorry, 30 30 second, 30, a 30 move average PB. 30 in FMC is considered to kind of be like the barrier between, you know. PR. Nov- sort of. Oh my god. <laughs> 30 moves is kind of seen to be the barrier between someone who, you know, can get these solved just by getting, you know, spamming enough CFOP solutions and to the point where you're kind of doing real fewest moves attempts and real fewest moves techniques. I would say that 30 for FMC is maybe a little bit better than like that three average on two by two. Oh, you think that's a little better? I think it is a little better, but maybe not a lot. Okay. Well, you want to take like 33 then? Either way, they're close enough to be comparable. Okay, okay, fair enough. So let's assume for this exercise those are roughly comparable in terms of skill. You know, everyone's going to have subjective opinions on this, but um, they're in the same ballpark, and yet when you take a Kinch score of 30, you know, the current world record mean right now is 24, that's an 80% score. Yep. Even if we achieved a 17 average, if we achieved that floor, your score is a 56, still better than that two by two average of three seconds yep so it's pretty clear to see here that because fmc has such a high floor and times don't vary much above that floor those two factors low variance and high floor lead to um very inflated kinch scores yeah and so for people like us who fmc is our best ranked event 
mm-hmm. and our best like skill compared to other people it we don't that doesn't get counted as much for us in kinch scores exactly we we don't get as much of an edge over others for example my uh current mean is 26.67 and that results in a kinch score of 89 percent 80 percent though was that 30 move average in many other events 80 percent is a world-class kinch score and i don't get that sort of same jump over others that i do that i would get in say another event yeah so here's, so here's kind of the thing. The linear sort of approach, the percentage approach, our percentile approach, uh, that gives you sort of the equal jumps for every event, but it, it doesn't give you significant jumps. Right. When you move a certain percentage up, you get that percentage back. But that is not a helpful jump. Um, so it seems like what we want to do is for every event, we want to somehow define what it means you know, when you improve this much ranking-wise, what should that translate to score-wise? And and the thing is, you have to come up with a system for that because right, it's relatively easy to think of this subjectively, or not not necessarily to get a good answer, but to come up with a suge- subjective answer of like improving this much in two by two is equivalent to improving this much in FMC. Well, I came up with a way to do do this, sort of as a thought exercise. Um, I, I want to hear this because I saw something that mentioned it, but I never actually read an explanation of it. So I figured I'd just okay. ask you directly. <laughs> so I called it X Kinch. Um, the reason for this is because um, I follow a lot of baseball statistics stuff. And whenever anyone does an adjustment uh, or a normalization sort of a method for a, a stat that already exists, you just put an X in front of it. Okay. And that just means it's modified in, or normalized in some way. That was the name for the, the stat. The idea behind this is I'm essentially kind of combining two worlds, that percentage ranking world and the Kinch world. Because I like the distributional aspects of Kinch, that the world class get very big jumps between, you know, certain ranks. But, you know, like going 10 ranks up within the top 100 is huge. Going up 10 ranks in the top 1,000, meh. Yeah. Kinch does a good job at handling that. But the problem is, is that because of these different floors, different ceilings, the distribution of kinch scores for FMC, everyone has super high kinch scores for um, two by two. Everyone has relatively low kinch scores. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when, yeah. Ma- when, when Mascow was dominating multi-blind, I don't think anybody had a kinch that was above 50%. Yeah. And even and like seven by seven and stuff like I suck at seven by seven and I only have a single, but my mm-hmm. kinch score for my single is like, I don't know, like 20 something. But for like two by two, which is an event I'm actually okay at, it's also like 20 something. So, right. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, basically, what I wanted to do is I would say, okay, let's just make every event have the same distribution. And the way I thought of doing this was well, three by three has the most competitors, the most data. Let's just say every distribution for Kinch score is matched to the three by three distribution. So, here's how I did that. Calculate 3x3 three three kinch scores exactly how you would in the normal kinch. Okay. Those not un- remain unchanged. What you would do for every event is take a competitor's um, percentile in the event, mm-hmm. match that to the closest percentile in 3x3. Three three, okay. Look at the person who is closest to that, take their kinch score, and apply it to the other event for the other person. Okay, so... So if Joe Schmo is a 87th percentile 7x7 smaller solver, uh-huh. and Eric 
man is the 87th percentile 3x3 solver, and his kinch score is 60%, we'll say. I don't think that it actually is, but we'll just say for the sake of example. Sure. Um, Joe Schmo's 7x7 kinch score is also 60%. Okay. Um, one question. Like, this might not be true, but I needed to say it to think it out. So the problem with the percentiles was that there's, like, insignificant differences between them. Mm-hmm. So when you have someone who is the 99 point whatever, like, percentile in an event, compare mm-hmm. that to the 99 point whatever percentile in 3x3, three three. there being so much more data for 3x3, three three, is that going to cause, like, is that somehow going to cause this to become inaccurate or, or yeah, unrepresentative? So... I'm trying to think, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say, but I feel like that somehow not being able to match up the the percentiles like one with a one-to-one correspondence, I feel like that's going to mess up the results somehow. So there, yeah, there's going to, you have to come up with some rounding logic. In reality, nobody has the 87th percentile in an event. They have the 86.9432 whatever Mm -hmm. and so on percentile. And nobody has that percentile in the other event unless the total number of competitors divides the other or something. Mm -hmm. And then you do have rational, uh, or I guess they're always rational, Um, but you have non, you have terminating decimals at least. Um, and that terminating decimals that match up as well. Yeah, and this is one. This is the issue that I noticed when I did this as sort of a thought experiment. Is if you, for example, look at some of the Kinch scores for just three by three, it's impossible to get second place's Kinch score in almost any other event unless there's a really similar number of competitors. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking of. Like yes. no one's going to have that, but there might be someone who is the equivalent of that, of that right. being that good in another event, but they're never going to achieve that Kinch score. Yeah, so what I noticed about this is that it was an improvement, but it also, it tended to punish whoever was in second place a little harshly. Okay. Um, simply because... I would imagine it's not just second, it's like good amount of the top. <laughs> right, no, yeah. It, yeah, second, third, fourth. Yeah, it, depending on how popular the event is. If it's, you know, if there's more than half the number of competitors, I would say it really only affected second place because they missed out on the second place 3x3 three three Kinch score. Mm-hmm. After that, it flattens out a little bit, so it's not a huge deal. So that was one of the disadvantages that I noticed from this system was that, yeah, it was a little tricky to uh, figure this out Uh, and a little tricky to match distributions perfectly. Overall, like if you looked at the distribution, you know, if you looked at the forest for itself, you wouldn't be able to distinguish this group of kinch scores versus this group of kinch scores other than there was more kinch scores in the 3 by 3 pile. Mm -hmm. But... You know, if you were to graph, you know, like a histogram of them, they would look nearly identical. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of the goal of this. And it achieved that goal. They looked almost indistinguishable. The problem was that uh, the very top cubers suddenly had bigger jumps between them. Okay. Simply just because it was hard to, you know, perfectly match up. And so that, like, you know, the second place Kinch score, which, like, for 3x3 is Max Park... Um, what do we say it was, 97%? It's really hard to now, it, nearly impossible to get 97%. So that if you look at a different event, you'd have some, the world record holder having 100. And then the second place in 7x7 seven seven might be like 87 or 88. Um, simply because yeah. they have to jump pretty far down the 3x3 three three rankings. Well, well uh, to give an extreme example, that is obviously not how it actually works, but... For instance, in 3x3, three three, say your percentiles are separated by, like, 1%. So, like, number one person is 99%. Number two 
number two or number one is 100 sure, percent. Sure. number two is 99 like mm-hmm. talking about their percentile people in the world that's obviously not yeah. true it's more like 99.9999 um but if that were true and then seven by seven had one tenth of the number of people who had competed in competed in it the jumps would be 10 times as big so first place would be um 100 points still second place though is now down to whatever the 90th right. percentile is in three by three and obviously those numbers are way out of scale, but that's the general idea of what happens, even though that second place person could have the yes. same so skill. It, that's as the kind of the other thing, too, is that um, we're going back to that. It's kind of weird to explain this, but um, like going down to second place is kind of like the same as going down to third place in a way. But it's not because the jumps may be different in the three by three sort of way however there might be for example in three by three at one point someone who's killing the competition and therefore making it really hard in other events which might be tight at the top but if it's really tight at the top in three by three then that's a good thing because then it helps the other distributions but if we're if we're if we're in a a world where you know the three by three world record average is you know really good and very few people are close to it then yeah, we ha- this problem gets exacerbated in my system. Really, it's tricky. The, the, what this exercise should really reveal is it's hard to come up with a good overall ranking system. I don't really have a concrete improvement, but I have ideas. So what I noticed when I did this exercise is, you know, I looked at the distribution through um, essentially an empirical cumulative distribution function, which is a big statistical term uh, but essentially what it does is i want to know for a given percentile what is the kinch score um, and at the time i ran this which was um 2017 i had a sort of like a little empirical graph that showed just a bunch of dots that uh lined up a cuber's percentile with their current kinch rank score and um essentially what this graph looked like um it looked kind of like its shape was most similar to say a um a tangent curve like it asymptotes ish not really because it doesn't go on infinitely but it like flat it, it's very straight on the left edge straight on the right edge and it kind of flattens and then goes straight up again um so what i thought is rather than try to just do this matching of percentiles i now have an idea of what this function should look like so rather than always oh, okay. making it refer to three by three i should just try to tweak this mm-hmm. function that maps the percentile to the kinch rank score so that it's it still could you know people are going to be tighter if the event is more competitive that is more people are doing it because you're going to have smaller mm-hmm. jumps in percentiles therefore smaller jumps in kinchrank scores but from 1 to 2 and 2 to 3 are still different jumps mm-hmm. so yeah i've been thinking about ways that you know if i really cared to push this forward of coming up with some function that maps percentile to kinchrank score but this is really still subjective I would imagine that the distributions for all events aren't similar to 3x3. Three three. Like, especially some of the blindfolded stuff, I would think, is very different. Yeah, and that's kind of the tricky part, too, is that I am kind of throwing away, um, in a sense, how close in some non-3x3 three three event is number two to number one. And that is definitely a disappointing thing to throw out from this sort of system. But it does remove a huge problem in that um, comparing event to event is basically meaningless. And it does, though, still retain the nice quality that um, there's big differences at the top to represent the big differences in skill that exist in the top results compared to other parts of the rankings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's really, 
tricky to come up with a good way to do this. Another idea that I had to modify Kinch was to try to propose what are these floors? Like, what is the floor for every event? That's what I was also thinking. But so you're saying, like, you somehow subtract something from every yeah, score so or something. And then yeah, you would um, calculate Kinch? basically take the world record time and subtract from it the the mm-hmm. bottom the bottom layer basically like what is the get rid of the the impossible times basically and then take the person's time and then take out the range of po- impossible times as well what if you do a survey of every comp- <laughs> of every competitor and ask them what they think like what time they think is equivalent to Ooh. what time on every other. I mean, that event. would that would get you a popular subjective idea. But no, isn't there that like idea that when you ask a group of people, they tend and then you take the the mean or the average or like yes. which is the same thing, except in cubing terms. Uh, if and then you like and then you take the mean of what they say, you're gonna basically get the same result, like wisdom um, of the crowd or something. Not always. There's definitely a lot of uh, bias. And that can come up in pe- what people think about something versus what they actually have. For example, um, people if people are self-reporting their own weight or height, what they say or what they think about something might be biased in some way for some reason. Um, and these, But like if you ask people what they think the average weight of a person is, and then you get everyone's answers, and then you take the average of all of their answers, you'd get pretty close to the, what the actual average is. Or at least no, I've... Not- I thought I'd heard something like that. Definitely not. Are you sure? Um, I'm pretty sure I've seen like studies where they've asked people like, how much do you think this thing weighs? And then even if it's something that the people have no idea about, they can get pretty close. That might be true in certain contexts, but there is always potential for bias in any survey results. Yeah. Compared to what you're actually measuring. I mean, this is a very impractical idea anyway. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Um, But yeah, what people think about something versus reality does not always line up. I think it, like there are studies that might show it for a specific example that people's thoughts on something might ma- actually match reality. Well, well, the the idea was that some people would overestimate, some people would underestimate. Like no one's ideas actually match reality, but on average, everyone's ideas do because people tend to be like vary in both directions. Uh, not always. Okay. So I mean, yes, people do tend to vary in both directions, but the place that everyone is aiming overall might be off yeah okay so yeah you're thinking of the idea of variance that yes people will tend to vary above and below your average um but that average well first off the distribution might be skewed so it might not be the same number above and below could be some outliers bringing it up on one end but the other thing too is that if you think of this in sort of a dartboard analogy people might be aiming their darts consistently not at the bullseye okay yeah so, yeah, people might just be taking their darts and just consistently throwing it, you know, a couple inches off the bullseye every single time. And they're really good at hitting that spot. Yeah. And that might be some really good information, but because you think like, oh, man, they barely vary around this one number. This is a really good number. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what's better is that you get a wider range that might actually be right over the center. Yeah, this is this whole idea of like bias and variance, and they're often big trade-offs in statistics. Survey results, people's thoughts often carry a lot of bias. The examples of like weight and height, for example, you know, for example, one thing too, if you ask people what like the average American weight is, Americans are stereotypically fat. 
Um, and people might, as a result of that stereotype, give an average weight that's much higher than the actual average weight. Okay, yeah. Sometimes the types of biases like that are super are very, very inherent. Um, but there's also a lot of times where biases can be rather surprising. Yeah, okay. And there's not a, always an explanation for that. Um, so you might have seen studies that may, that show that in this specific instance, this specific context, that people are good at predicting something for um, this specific instance on average. Um, but in other cases, they 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 still might average out to something, but it will it, they could be consistently missing the mark. Since we spent a long time talking about Kinch stuff. We're going to move on to some other topics and try to do them a little bit rapid fire. So let's pick some simple topics here. Kit, GTS3 yes. ridges, gimmick or useful or other? Uh, detrimental. Detrimental. Okay. I cannot turn a GTS3. Really? I, I disagree. <laughs> no. It's my main now. Uh, I like them a lot. <sighs> Actually, I, I barely notice them. The, the reason I use it is because they're good for differentiating the cube in FMC. Uh, because I'm, I can like I can like set it to a state and I can I'll never get confused which cube I set it on. I'm like oh it's the one with ridges. That's actually kind of interesting. Maybe I'll pick some up for FMC. Yeah, so I've, <laughs> I've been using that and then a couple of stickerless Volks, which basically have the same color shades. Because um, mm-hmm. I like using all stickerless because I don't have to worry about peeling. But then the ridges yeah. solve the problem of differentiating cubes, which I was previously doing with stickers. I don't know what it is about GTS threes. Well, first off, I can't even get them in my color scheme. Mm, yeah, true. <laughs> So it's not even something I'm thinking about. But when I have tried to do speed solves on them, like obviously I'm slower because it's not my color scheme, but I just, I feel slower on the cube. I recognize that the, the functionality of the cube, especially with the, the tensioning tools that it has, um, that is definitely not a gimmick. Yeah, that I actually really cool. liked that. I was expecting yeah. to, f- to feel like it was kind of a gimmick, but it made tensioning the cube so easy and easy to fine tune. Yeah, no, for sure. And that is something I really want in a different cube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, or honestly, if they just made a GTS-3 without ridges, I probably would be all in on that cube. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time I've tried to turn that puzzle, it just feels so awkward to me. Like, I don't know what it is, if it's about the way I'm flicking things or something, but those ridges definitely get in my way. Okay. I mean, I honestly, when I started, when I did my first turns on it, I didn't notice them at all, and I still don't notice them at all. That's so weird. Yeah, because they they are so obvious to me. Really? I don't know if I'm. I don't know if like my flicks land on the corners of the pieces more often. I don't know. And maybe that's why I notice them. Um, but yeah, I hate them. <laughs> okay. I'm not even calling them a gimmick. I I, <laughs> I think it's a complete detriment. I like them. Uh, okay, let's go with, um, have you tried the GAN 354? I have. It's another cube that I can't use. I don't like it. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I tried it. Someone uh, on Reddit, I'll go find who that person is. They are asking me if I liked it for OH, because I've said in the past that I think a 54mm cube would be ideal for me for OH. Mm-hmm. The GAN 354 is not that cube. I just do not like the way it turns. Hmm. It's 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 uh, not the magnets you think. It's just actually the way it turns. Uh, I don't know for sure, but I just whatever it is, I did not like turning it. Uh, that was Evan K forty two who asked who said that. Oh, okay, nice. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting because I hate gang cubes. Really, I can't stand the turning of gang cubes. Huh. That's the first gang cube that I've actually liked. <laughs> so for me, I actually quite like the turning of. Uh, the SM, which is the cube I have yeah. the most experience with of the GAN cubes. I don't use it anymore. 
Um, mm-hmm. But for a while, that was my 3x3 main. And then I wanted mm-hmm. to switch to stickerless, but Gan doesn't make stickerless cubes except for the 354, which is annoying. <laughs> and the 354 is the only one I don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've never actually tried the 354 as an OH cube. I scrambled a bunch at Nats. Yeah, that's my main experience with them as well. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I just ugh, didn't like it. Interesting, because that's the first GameCube I was like, oh, I kind of like this one. <laughs> so there's something about GameCubes that they took out of this one that I you, liked the re- reduction. You know what it might not. be? It might be their rounded centers, because the 354 mm. doesn't have rounded centers, whereas the other ones do. And actually, I also was really annoyed to find that out, because I was like, okay, I'm going to have this like perfect ideal fmc setup where i have a, a cube with ridges a cube with circular centers and a cube with like nothing weird and then mm-hmm. i can differentiate all three of those cubes like super easily right and then the gan 354 doesn't have circular centers so i'm like i can't do this with stickerless cubes <laughs> <sighs> yeah i mean you can just have a sticker cube and that clearly stands out from the others but then i have to like recognize it differently and i don't like i'm bad at i don't know my recognition really suffers whenever i switch between stickerless and stickered really yeah it's it's a lot (laughs) so well i guess that makes sense to some degree because i have been exclusively white cubes before stickerless Mm. became legal okay um and i think like if you look at a stickerless cube versus a white cube Mm -hmm. like the colors don't look any different to me really but on a black cube i cannot recognize anything on a black cube Hmm. okay so i wonder if it's just because i come from white color cubes yeah I, i don't know uh, shall we move into other other things? Let's go. Your color scheme, actually, we were kind of talking about it. Might as well c- cross that oh. off the list. That's been a like ah. like well, like a random topic for a while. Uh, do you, do you want to tell us what your color scheme is? I have mentioned that I can't use the GTS three or the GAN three five four because of my color scheme. Uh, the reason for this is because one of my sides is black. Um, and let me explain how this happened. So my first ever Rubik's Cube was um, a Detroit Red Wings-themed cube that I bought at Borders, rest in peace. (laughs) And those sort of, like, team-themed cubes, generally they have, like, a bunch of logos on them. Like, one was, like, Western Conference, NHL. They had a bunch of random logos, but all of the random, like, not necessarily team-specific logos were on black sides. Mm. So I had, like, basically four black sides with different logos, a red side and a white side. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that sucked. Um, so, <laughs> Cube Smith also rest in peace. Um, I know this is this is a really sad story and basically <laughs> shows how old I am. Um, so, Cube Smith back in the day would sell replacement stickers, and my friend who used to cube with me in high school was like, "Yo, you should get uh, some stickers from this website." I was like, "Oh, cool! I didn't know this existed. Thank you." He's like, "Also, you should be edgy and do a Japanese color scheme." <laughs> Oh, okay, sure. So I did. Um, the problem is when I did the Japanese color scheme, um, I didn't understand rotational symmetry. Okay. <laughs> so I'm actually mirrored Japanese color scheme. <laughs> so, for example, when you on a normal cube to get Japanese, you switch yellow and blue. Yeah. I switch green and white. Ah. Uh. <laughs> so it's the same opposites, but it's mirrored. But you still have, do you still have a white side, or did you replace white with black? Yeah. This is this is part two of the story. Okay. Um. 
So I found out about DIY kits on cube for you, not rest in peace, but effectively rest yeah, in peace. I was going to say almost rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, maybe in a couple years, we'll see. But cube for you, when I was starting out, was literally the place to buy cubes from. They had all of the type A, type B through F DIY kits. See, back in my day, we had to build our cubes from scratch <laughs> because they were afraid of them getting caught by customs and not passing Rubik's trademark and stuff. And apparently we're too brave now for that. So <laughs> I don't know. Ishin used to sell all their big cubes with purple sides to get around that too. So I don't know where all this bravery came from. But anyways, back in the day, white cubes weren't exactly as white as today's cubes. I think, honestly, white cubes... 10 years ago were more like primary cubes today yeah that's what i was gonna say the they were just basically uncolored plastic mm -hmm. so they were always cheaper than black cubes like one to two dollars cheaper nice so i was like screw it i can get i can buy more puzzles if i just switch to white mm -hmm. so i did back in the day though they didn't give you white stickers for white cubes they gave you black stickers oh, okay <laughs> so I, I switched to black it, it, instead it all of white. Falls, it all falls together. Yep, and that's how my color scheme was born. It doesn't seem like it should be that uncommon. I, I'm surprised there aren't more people who have done that. Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting about the cubing community is that cubes are, are like, when I started this, I was thinking, like, you know, cubes are, like, the ultimate customizable thing. Um, a lot of my friends in high school, like, they're not, like, serious cubers, but when they um, were getting cubes, I was, like, telling them, no, don't buy one in store. You can get one like there was a puzzle pro shop on eBay that was mm -hmm. in the U S and they were more expensive than cube for you, but they were still less expensive than a Rubik's brand. Yeah. Cube for you literally took a month to ship. So <laughs> I didn't want to recommend anyone to go through that experience unless, you know, you were hardcore and were willing to wait, you know, months for your cubes. And I'd be like, no, no, just buy a cube here. We can get stickers from CubeSmith if you don't like those. And a lot of the times, like my friends would be like, Oh yeah, let me get some cool custom colors for my cube. So it looks cool and unique. Yeah. And I'm really surprised that when I got into the competitive scene that, like, people had no desire to be unique. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like, actually... What? For, yeah, for a long time, I had a very unique color scheme. Mm -hmm. uh, it was like... Or not color scheme, sticker shades. Mm -hmm. um, I had, like, a really bright fluoro orange when, like, no one was doing that. <laughs> uh, and I had, like, a really pale blue, both from Cubesmith. Mm -hmm. Rest in peace. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, eventually, I, I I actually only switched off of that relatively recently when I tried the Gan Air SM, and I was like, mm -hmm. I can recognize these colors better than I can recognize <laughs> my own colors, uh, because apparently whatever they use, like full brights plus sky blue or whatever, apparently that just works really well. So I feel like that's probably a part, a lot of it now, is people just, like, you can act, I actually think that you can recognize different colors better. <laughs> Yeah, and I kind of noticed that because I went from the GTS 2M to a Yushin uh, Huanlong as a main. Mm -hmm. um, and Moyu's blue is really light. J just Actually, blue is the most noticeable, but in general, Yushin stickerless colors are much darker. Okay. Um, and oh, I the suddenly... stickerless colors, yeah. Yeah, stickerless, sorry. And when I switched, I was like, wow, I recognize this so much better. Uh, on the Huanlong? Yeah, the Huanlong, I know. The darker okay. colors just stood out to me so much better. The, the GTS-3 has darker colors than the GTS-2 did. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I got some GTS-2s recently from Mark. And Same. I was trying to use them for 3x3, and I just, my recognition sucked on them. But then as soon as I switched to the GTS-3, they're pretty similar, but the, they're, dark, they're darker enough that it makes a big difference. 
Yeah, the blue on the GTS two is in kind of the old MoU stickerless is really light. Yeah, I do not like that blues. at all. The the yeah. GTS three has a really nice blue. Like hmm. my recognition is really good on it. So yeah, and it's it's interesting. I know there's definitely a desire to be more standard, but like you, it's so surprising to me how ununique cubers are. Like <laughs> you can look at people's blind orientations legitimately 70 plus percent are white on top green in front or white on top red in front wait really when i saw a poll on this yeah like it's more than half at least are one of those two i feel like i've just like talking to people i've felt like i've found a disproportionate number of people who have had my orientation even though i didn't expect that what what's yours yellow on top blue in front so i guess that's just a z2 from like scrambling orientation i chose that because I learned ZZ with blue front uh, from okay. Phil Yu's tutorial, which I feel like a lot of ZZ users did. And that makes sense to me because like that method is dependent on like using colors for recognition. So you might as well already use the one that there's the guide for. So I chose that because that was like the orientation I was most familiar with because of ZZ and it just kind of felt right. But then since then, I feel like I found a lot of people who have that. Like Kevin Matthews uses that. I'm trying to think of who else, but I know I've run into other people. I think the what really influenced a lot of people was that um, when Noah Arthur's made his uh, M2OP tutorial, there was no mm-hmm. cube rotations as part of scrambling. Oh, uh, okay. So it was often that you just got your cube in the same orientation it was scrambled, mm-hmm. or at least it was con- done consistently at a particular competition. And I think he made the recommendation because they scramble in that orientation, you should salt in that orientation too. And that makes sense. Well, um, it did so back in the day. Right. So I think a lot of people, when they learn from his tutorial, because of his recommendation, and of course, a lot of people still use his tutorial, they have some sort of white top orientation. Um, And it's just happened to be a lot of white top green front. I don't know. Um, It's kind of surprising to me how conforming cubers are. They're much more conform, much, much bigger conformists than I expected. So you expect there to be like radical cubers out on the fringes doing crazy stuff like, like using like giant cubes and solving with weird methods and stuff yeah is that, sure is that, is that I the mean, world you expect I, I i think i'm thinking more in terms of the fact that like cubes can be so customizable i mean yeah, it's no less and less today but you used to be able to buy like so many different plastic colors of diane cubes mm-hmm. you had have a world of sticker colors some like metallic to pick from and it's just kind of surprising to me that like you know if people are still using sticker cubes and like you want to identify like your cross side or f2l pieces like why don't you make your like in a cfop sort of deal why don't you make uh that side like metallic yeah that would be cool like <laughs> it's just it or the fact that yeah people will do different shades but they still keep the same color scheme mm-hmm and people don't try out different things, you know, for speed or just because they want to be unique. I, I guess you also get used to something like if you buy like a Rubik's brand as your first cube or if you buy any kind of pre-assembled cube, you're going to start learning with some some predetermined color right. scheme. But most cubers back in the day, I mean, at least for me, my turnaround from going Rubik's Cube to DIY kits back when everything was DIY kits, mm-hmm. you know, it was pretty quick. It was like two, three months. Not yeah. enough time to get used to anything. I'm just surprised that very few people back then did try, you know, didn't try doing something different because it's like, you have to put the cube together and sticker it anyways. Why not do it in a cool way? Yeah. Or in a unique way. I have to say that from having my color scheme, one of the best consequences about it is when I go to competitions, I know exactly which cubes are mine. (laughs) Yep. I used to have the same thing. There's no way anyone is going to mistake my cube for anybody else's. 
So that's nice. It also means that like any thieves out there that are looking for cubes will just look at my cubes and go, ew, <laughs> and put it back <laughs> down. Yeah. Oh, I could steal this one, but <laughs> let's let's pretend I never picked that up. <laughs> right. And maybe my FMC cubes will be taken, but no. Hmm. Do you I not use, use your color scheme on all your FMC cubes? No. What? No. How do you do FMC with a color scheme that isn't your normal color scheme? How would I... Because if I'm going to match the picture, I want the colors to match. Like, but, if I get a picture to check my scramble, I'm not about to check it on that, that other... But doesn't your recognition suffer so much that you're... No. So, like, you could be like an FMC god if you... If, I mean, not that you aren't, but uh, <laughs> like you could, you could, you could be so much better if you just used your color scheme and like recognize Definitely stuff. Not. No, no, the recognition in terms of speed solving is different than an FMC. Like split seconds are not going to help me in FMC. In FMC, I don't know. You're talking I, to I, a guy I, who pre-writes like 50 stickers to save like a quarter of a second <laughs> i mean i pre-write 10 every time so <laughs> i have price tags so i rip them in half anyways i go one two three four five a b c d e on so it'd be like one two is on one sticker three four is on another sticker so i do that too because <laughs> you know that that is a significant amount of time but when you're doing fmc you're not making split second decisions you're looking around the cube to try to see how things pair up and honestly mm. i think it's a bit of a benefit because um, when I started out, I wasn't defaulting to CFOP stuff. Okay. Because I didn't have, it didn't overlap with any F2L cases that I knew. I was just trying to do things block building. Okay. That makes um, sense. Yeah. I, Honestly, I still feel like you, the, like the cumulative advantage you would get of doing multiple solves during the attempt would be like maybe a minute or so. Oh, like when you have I to feel. solve up your cube if you yeah. screw up or something. Yeah. No, definitely no? not. Okay. I honestly, my average is maybe one second slower on a different color scheme. Okay, I don't it's know. It's really not much different. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> I've I've solved other like the normal color scheme is so prevalent that like I've solved it plenty of times. Okay, like yeah. <laughs> for, you know when scrambling cubes and I screw up at competitions or trying out other people's cubes. Like you know, it's way different when I hand my cube to somebody else and say solve it. They are like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> When I see a normal color scheme, I know what a normal color scheme is. Okay. The gap is not equivalent going both ways. Well, you know what we haven't done today, Kit? <laughs> You're right. Well, I guess it's time to talk about the regs of the day. Well, there's two. There are two. All um, right. Because they kind of create a sort of interesting conundrum. So when we define the metric for square one and what counts as a move, we say that the XY component sort of thing, like the, the thing in parentheses, when you make a, a U adjustment and a D adjustment, mm -hmm. that's a move. Okay. And a slash that is turning the half of the puzzle is a move. Okay. One regulation I didn't include here, but it's kind of related, is that you can't perform moves in inspection. And that if a puzzle is misaligned, you can do allowable alignments on the puzzle. Right. Okay, now here's the weird part. It's this square one's the only puzzle that doesn't agree in how we count moves and how we determine misalignments. So yeah, because for most, or for every other puzzle, a plus two is if it's more than half of a turn away, right? Right. But for square one, you know, you can turn one little 30 degree pieces and that's considered a move. Mm -hmm. But we allow up to 45 degrees as if it were a three by three. 
because it's a like square puzzle or well almost almost it's almost a cube right yeah it's a cubic it's a cubic ish puzzle this is this is kind of a weird thing because if you're holding a square one in an inspection the allowable limits um for misalignments are up to 45 degrees on the u layer or 90 degrees on the slash wait it is that true if you get a misaligned puzzle during inspection? It's really unclear as to oh, what okay. a move is. So you're doing a so technically you are doing a move if you have you know done a thirty degree turn. Okay, that is true. But you know one thing that they like when remember when Drew Brad's pyramids thing was DNF because he went beyond the allowable yeah. limits mm-hmm. sort of thing. You know if you turn at fifteen degrees, is that now halfway to a move? Or do we do it based on what's allowable in terms of misalignments? It's really weird because the puzzle is different when it's solved versus scrambled. Yeah. <laughs> it's caused some conundrums before as to like w- what is an allowable move. And some people have even wondered, this is definitely not true, um, if you can do a 30 degree turn in inspection. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. Yeah. But it, it's it's definitely a combination of regulations that are interesting because square one poses really interesting problems. Mm-hmm. So the regulations in question here are 12C4 and 10F4. Yes, so 10C, 12C4 defines how you count moves on a square one and what you define as a move. Um, and 10F4 defines how you deal with misalignments at the end of a solve. Yeah, so what is the official, like, is it, it's not clear clarified anywhere in the regulations? Is there no guideline or anything that clarifies this? Um, so I, I think that if you combine enough regulations, you would figure out that, um, you know, you're definitely not allowed to do moves in inspection. And the way we define moves is just kind of different than how we define misalignments. And it's definitely clear on how you should do this. It's just unclear to general people because a lot of people confuse our misalignment rules Mm -hmm. with what you can do in inspection. Right. And those do line up for every puzzle except square one. Got it. So it's interesting because I think that it's, you know, a useful sort of heuristic that people use mm-hmm. uh, when they're trying to think about what's acceptable for inspection and misalignments. And this heuristic almost works. Yep, but not quite. All right. Hey, Kit. Welcome hey. back. Thanks. Uh, how's your heart doing? Better than it was a couple minutes ago. So, <laughs> um, I just had a power flash. So... Um, it's now 1 a.m. here. Um, you know, horror movies, axe murderers sort of things come to mind when it, your house goes pitch black in the middle of the night. Um, so thankfully that uh, did not come to fruition. But, um, but, but Kit, more importantly than the axe murderer I hired to kill you, we almost lost the podcast recording. That is true. We, uh, <laughs> I thought we lost it. And thankfully, because I've, I've been cut off mid-audacity recording before and it has done nothing to save it. But uh, this time, it did recover, so <laughs> thank God. <laughs> I was worried that we were going to have to redo this two-hour-ish podcast, but thankfully <laughs> we will not have to. Yeah, so, uh, however, we are taking it as a sign from the podcast gods that we should probably wrap this up. <laughs> probably. Um, you know, as much as I... Uh, let me be honest. I'm just very glad to talk with you for two hours again. Right, yeah, this, this is like the worst part of my... <laughs> To every couple weeks or so yeah i was about to lie and say i really love talking with you and then i realized nah honestly. yeah no no this sucks this is this is work yeah this is what, what we are doing right now listeners you don't understand how hard i work for you i have to put up with this guy for like two hours 
Yeah, and he doesn't even edit anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet editing's so much better than talking to me. Ah, uh, well, you when I'm editing, I have to, to listen to you. <laughs> At least I get like the little like you know the kind of uh, dopamine hits every time I get to delete something you said. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, what a relief! Sometimes I wish I could delete things that I said. <laughs> Well, thanks everybody for listening to another grand episode. Uh, you can check us out uh, and discuss the podcast on our subreddit. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening. Wow, this is like the most normal ending we've ever had. <laughs> well, All right, bye everyone. <laughs> thanks for ruining that. <laughs>